You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Good morning, you are tuned into the 3CR Gardening Show for another lovely Sunday. My name is Chloe Foster and with me in the studio this morning I have an excellent team of very experienced and knowledgeable horticulturalists. I would like to welcome Penny Woodward, author of numerous books, eight to be exact, and writer, horticultural editor of Organic Gardener magazine. Greg Boulderston, bulb and fungi enthusiast and part of the team at Forest Glade Gardens in Macedon. And Chloe Thompson, horticulturalist of Been There, Dug That on the on website and socials and founder of Sprout School. Good morning to you all. Good morning. morning. Good morning. What a morning. It was a bit wet coming in. Wet and foggy. It was very moody. It was foggy. It was very moody. It was a moody, humid morning. Yes. It was nice to drive up in daylight. But yes, it wasn't true. it. Mm. I heard birds when I woke up mm. this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you hear birds every morning when you wake up? Yes, I do. <laughs> On a Sunday morning before the radio show, usually it's dark and I don't get, get okay, to hear yeah. the birds. <laughs> but no, it was very nice coming in this morning. Um, but yeah, just a little bit foggy. Yeah, it was. It's not, quite foggy. not from the peninsula. Not for you? No. No, clear skies. Yep. You're very lucky. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. The weather bypasses us altogether and um, other times it, it hits us really hard. Yeah. But, you know, I think that's true of most yeah. areas. Yep. Greg, how's, how's Macedon been in your place and Forest Glade in, with the it's weather in the last few weeks? living in tropical areas because it's – I can't remember this type of weather ever before. It's <laughs> – yeah. uh, um, we had as much rain as we've ever had over winter but it just keeps going. And uh, uh, I'm not complaining about that because I like cold – wet weather but now it's starting to get warm so it's Mm. a bit sticky as well which (laughs) isn't quite as fun yeah um but it'll be interesting to see over summer if this keeps up uh especially with things like bulbs that uh and other plants that like a dry summer 
how they're going to react to those things because uh, mm. warm, wet ground isn't loved by plants that don't like warm, wet ground in summer. <laughs> yes, and it's interesting you say that because I've just uh, – one of the subjects I've taught this semester, and it's one of my favourite subjects to teach, um, it's a cluster and uh, for shorthand we call it plan and implement, but the students plan out a garden bed – and we source the plants and they do the planting design and they get to plant it out and do the whole thing from start to finish. Um, and we've been planning this garden based on it's along a road and, it's, you know, there's reflected heat and there's no irrigation. So we've been doing these, picking these plants for a dry, hot spot. Mm. <laughs> How's it working out? Uh, well, <laughs> we haven't had to water. Yeah, well, <laughs> I was going to say, you're having to use your imagination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The plant, I mean... They're going gangbusters with growth, um, but we put in four different species of melieucalypt mm. <laughs> and that come from hot, dry areas yeah, yeah. of Australia. So there's a little bit of powdery mildew going on, and some of them, one of the species, Eucalyptus youngiana, is is a little bit slow. But the yeah, Eucalyptus wimmerensis, which is from the Wimmera region, which is very hot and dry. Uh, that's the one that's been suffering the most with powdery mildew. So we've had to do yeah. a few applications of a eco fungicide to it. Well, it's, it's been that damp for because it's been it's not just this season. Of course, it's been uh, at Mount Masson at least. Anyway, it's been wet for over a year now, mm. like constantly. Yeah. Um, and the hellebore, uh, the, the all the old hybrid hellebores uh, that have naturalised at Forest Glade are dying out because of this black sort of spot thing that's getting getting on the leaves. So there's, if you grouped up all the naturalised hellebores in Forest Glade, there's nearly two acres of them. Wow. And I think that's dropped down to about a third of an acre just in a year or so. Really? Yeah. It's, it's, it's hit them yeah. really hard. And they, they just send up, instead of sending up uh, 10, 15, 20 leaves, uh, they might only send up four or five. And wow. they're spotty and quite a bit smaller. So these huge areas which used to be knee-high hellebores and you know over winter uh thick with flowers of all different colors and now you know you can walk through there without standing on any and they're only about sort of ankle high <laughs> so <laughs> it's goodness. it's had a pretty dramatic effect yeah. effect on those the the slightly damper summers that we've had in the last year or so well i was talking to uh kath from mallee design at the yarra valley plant fair last weekend and she said it's just been raining in sydney for like a year, all year. Mm. So they just haven't had a break. Mm. It's just, there's just been so much water. I, I had a creek flowing down my front. Uh, there's a footpath out the front of our pla- at my place, and there's been a creek basically running down the footpath uh, after the heavy rain we had a few weeks ago for two or three weeks. Really? Oh, goodness. So it was just a, a full-on creek that it scoured out the footpath uh, <laughs> and uh, nearly my driveway as well. And I had a swamp in the backyard, and I, I live in really rich volcanic soil that's free draining, mm. and it, you never get water sitting on the surface for more than about ten minutes. But we had we've had that much water that the water table had actually risen up to the surface, yeah. and so I looked. You look out in the backyard, and there's like a swampy area. There's a, a, a fake little pond I dug years ago. I never got round to finishing uh, in that soil, so it never holds water. And I, I walked out there, and I had a pond. You got a pond. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's that's a bit of rain to 
for it not to drain through, mm. you know, rich red volcanic mm. soil wow. easily. It's, uh, it was a lot of rain. It's nuts. I've mm. never been so glad to live at the top of a hill, I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but to get to our place, you cross a little one-lane bridge with, that normally has like a little one-metre creek um, flowing underneath it. Well, that one-metre creek is now about... 12 metres wide and the erosion that's happened yeah. and the trees that are falling down, yeah. it's dramatic. Like that landscape's never going to go back to looking like that little one metre wide mm. creek. Mm. You know, it's, it's now a really wide eroded section. It can happen creek. pretty quickly yeah. too with water. Yep. It's just, totally. it's, uh, yeah, all overnight. Is, uh, <laughs> really yeah, literally yeah, overnight. Yeah, <laughs> So is that on your land, the creek? No, oh, no, it's not okay. on our land. but Because okay. um, it yeah. probably badly needs, as soon as the water stops sowing for any length of time, someone to get in there and start planting. It does. Along it to yes. stop it mm. All those new worse. bare banks. Yep, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yes. It'll be one of those things, I think, if the council doesn't get onto it soon or Melbourne mm. Water. Um, mm. Use that good old SnapSend Solve app. Have you ever used that? It's brilliant. I've heard of it, but I haven't used it. Yeah, so if you take a photo of something Mm. like, you know, a creekway that's full Mm. of rubbish or, you know, a tree that's fallen down, you take a photo of it and it sends it to the relevant authority and it's a geolocated photo. Right. And they they action it really quickly. Mm. It's really good. Yeah, you can post post photos of things like weeds that are, like, overtaking native vegetation. Mm. Yeah, Mm. all sorts. That's a really good idea. Mm. SnapSend Solve get on to it <laughs> um all right let's get on to some community announcements um where am i going to start there is the yarra valley bonsai club uh sale coming up oh my phone isn't working here we go uh yarra valley bonsai society it's open to all bonsai clubs and enthusiasts on saturday the 26th of november it's located at Churnside Park Community Hub on 33 Kimberley Drive, Churnside Park. So it's just running for the Saturday. Doors open at 10 a.m. until 1 p.m., um, $2 entry. So they've got a selection of bonsai and, um, you know, related items, uh, tools and equipment, bonsai trees, um, pots, books, and some products as well, such as um, orchid pine bark and some orchid pots. Um, The day after the sale on the Sunday, there is a workshop um, on bonsai, which is, again, so it's in Churnside Park Community Hub. Same, uh, no, sorry, different time, 1 p.m. till 4 p.m. So if you're interested in that, jump onto the Yarra Valley Bonsai Society's website uh, to get some more information. Uh, Open Gardens Victoria have got Cloverdale, in Werribee, so 85 Browns Road, Werribee, and that is still that was open yesterday, and it's open today as well from 10 a.m. until 4:30 p.m. Next weekend on the 19th and 20th of November, they've got the McPherson Garden in 28 Malvern Avenue, Glen Iris. So the garden is designed around different rooms in the Japanese style. There's courtyards, mini conifers, maples, camellias, and in most, as in most Japanese design gardens, there's elements of water, stone, and mosses as well. Um, there's a native garden towards the end of the property, a courtyard that has Daphne's hydrangeas and magnolias around it, and the front garden uh, has an extensive rockery 
with um, a colour palette of burgundy, blues and silvers. It sounds lovely. McPherson Garden, 10am till 4.30pm. Um, jump on the Open Gardens Victoria website if you want to buy any buy your tickets beforehand, but you can pay on the day. Uh, our lucky listeners, again, we are so... Uh, we're so lucky that OGV are generous with us. We've got a double pass entry to the McPherson Garden. So if you would like to snap up that double pass, give us a call now on 94190155. First in best dress, that's a double pass for the McPherson Garden. Also on at the moment is the Garden Design Fest. And... This weekend is focused on REIT Gardens in Metro Melbourne and next weekend is focused on gardens in regional Victoria uh, and they're open from 10am till 5pm next weekend. If you want some more information about Garden Design Fest, uh, it's best to jump onto, onto their website. So it's gardendesignfest.com.au. And I have one more, but please talk amongst yourself because I can't find the I've email. I've got one. I've actually got, if anyone is in Nilambik, so out near Eltham Neck of the Woods, there's an open studio. So for an um, incredible ceramicist, um, Jack Latty, uh, and he has actually his beautiful studio in research. is surrounded by a cacti and succulent garden, loads of aloes, of course, lots of his beautiful um, clay creations as well. But it's well worth a visit for both his beautiful clay creations and a look around his gardens. Um, Jack Latty, L-A-T-T-I. Um, great bloke. And he was actually on Gardening Australia a, a little while back. I'm sure if you Google him, you'll be able yeah. to see his garden that way. But great little uh, escape out to Nilambic. Good. Yeah. Thanks, Chloe. That's Excellent. Right. Uh, the other uh, community announcement is from Open Gardens Victoria again. Um, they've opened up their two, uh, 2022 giving program. Um, it's for organisations, community groups and associations um, to apply for up to $10,000 in cash and in-kind support. So the program, the giving program uses funds generated from um, garden open ticket sales and their events and subscriptions, etc., um, to support local organisations um, in, in any way that they need. So... Open, go to the Open Gardens Victoria website and there is a link there to their 2022 giving program. If there's any community groups out there that are so, you know, associated with horticulture or gardening, um, environment, food, community, anything like that, um, to apply for up to $10,000 in, uh, in support. Uh, there's two recent projects is the heart gardening project that they've supported and the backyard farmers project too which um, we've talked about a little bit on the show in the past so any community groups out there there's you know most of these places and the same with 3cr they run on the smell of an oily rag so this is an opportunity to um, get some funds in and get some support for your organization and it is that time to open up the phone lines so our number again is 94190155 if you want to join the conversation or ask us any questions. Our text line is open as well, 0488 809 855. Um, 
we are on Facebook and Instagram, so you can chat to us that way and we share photos of the plants that we bring in each week. If you missed the start of the show or if you missed any past shows, you can jump on to any of your either of your favourite podcast apps or the 3CR website and listen to old shows. Um, our email address, if you have any questions or if there's any community groups out there that want us to um, spread the word of events that they've got going on, send us an email, gardening at 3cr.org.au. Now, we had a text message come in in the early hours of this morning from one of our listeners in Western Australia. Uh, Veronica uh, says, good morning from WA, and I don't know if she'll be awake yet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She'd like to help her brother-in-law plant out underneath a mature jacaranda. It gets morning sunlight. Um, They don't want to dig big holes, but they're just wondering how much they can dig around underneath the tree before they start affecting the tree roots. Perhaps they can uh, make use of some above-ground garden beds. What do you guys think? Um, okay, I'll start. They're go. all looking at me. Um, <laughs> I, I would I would go above ground. Um, I um, have a sister who lives in Violettown and they've got um, some big eucalypts in their garden that they wanted to keep in the garden and they chose to plant underneath them by putting in wicking beds which they filled with Australian native flowers and they now have this amazing... Um, this part of the garden where the smaller birds come down and feed on the insects that are feeding on the flowers um, and the bigger birds come down a bit later and they have this whole community of um, indigenous wildlife that is making use of Mm. both the big trees because they need the big trees, particularly the bigger birds, as lookout points. Um, But the smaller birds need the the sort of the growth and the intense... um, tight growth to be able to hide in from from some of the more other bigger aggressive birds and cats and all that sort of thing but um yeah so and that has worked really really well there obviously there's expense in the wicking beds but then you don't lose your plants Mm -hmm. and you don't have to worry about watering them you don't have to worry about disturbing the roots um of of the tree but you also don't have to worry about your the plants that you're putting in yep. losing them over and over again mm. because they're not getting enough water because it's or nutrients because it's all being taken by the bigger tree yeah, yeah and above. that's the challenge with growing underneath <coughs> advanced trees yes mm, yeah totally. but yeah you had chloe you yeah had my only other idea was to use small tube stock of things like n- local native grasses that have the nice shallow fibrous roots that you know are not going to be too much of a competition for the jacaranda you're obviously not going to have to dig very big holes mm. um and yeah once they're established they'd be fine and they're good for the seed eating exactly birds. they're mm. good for the seed eating birds good for that nice little environment as mm. well absolutely yeah. i think uh, trees get dug under a lot too more than they should and obviously that's a pretty uh crucial spot for pathogens and things to get into especially uh again at forest glade there's a, a patch of armillaria which is a honey fungus and for years they were digging around this tree that had it and now there's lots of trees that have it mm. because of this constant digging underneath mm. the trees and <clears throat> the best way to sort of get it under control without having to pour fungicide everywhere constantly, which doesn't actually kill it anyway, mm-hmm. uh, is just stop attacking the roots. Yep. <laughs> stop damaging the roots <laughs> and giving the fungi and yeah. other pathogens a, an entry point into these trees. So, 
yeah, as you say, put, putting small things under there. If they've evolved to live underneath trees, they're probably a bit better to choose. Yep, yep. Um, and or, or making the own be- their own beds so they haven't got that competitions. Another really good idea too. Yeah. Bul- bulbs can be good. Some bulbs can be good under trees. Mm, yeah. Um, even evergreen trees, if you put them on the north-facing side, just underneath the drip line, in winter when they're growing, the sun's down low enough where they get full sun when they need it, and then in summer it's dry and shady. Uh, yeah. And there's a lot of bulbs that can love that love that sort of yeah uh, conditions those sort of conditions as well. Now, you, a lot of bulbs here don't like wet feet when they're dormant, particularly yeah. because they yep. can they can rot away. So. And, and they're not big on uh, nutrients either. Yeah, like especially a lot of the South African stuff. They're you know pretty depleted soils where mm. they come from, so they, they don't need a lot. Of, they're, mm. they're not really competing for food mm. and and things in uh, nutrients in the soil. Um, so it's just the sunlight they need in, in winter when they're growing. Mm. And, and I guess things like, you know, the native chocolate lilies and those sort of things yeah, would yeah. do well in that sort yep. of spot too, mm. and they're really pretty. Yep, they are. Well, we hopefully that's been helpful, Veronica. Um, the Open Gardens Victoria tickets have gone. Congratulations to that listener. Enjoy it. it. Sounds like a beautiful garden with lots of different sorts of plants in it. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is Chloe Foster and I have in the studio with me this morning Penny Woodward, Greg Boulderston and Chloe Thompson. Greg, let's get on to some plants. Um, let's start with the gladdies that you All brought right. in. <laughs> so uh, usually I bring species ones in and there are, there's a couple of species ones here. But most of the ones I brought in today are uh, species cultivars or hybrids or um, actually the first one I'll start off with is called Blushing Bride, which is a cultivar but that may have occurred naturally in the wild. So it's um, it's been in gardens since they started collecting stuff from South Africa and taking them back to England and whatnot. Um, and it was always thought just to be a cultivar that someone had bred and no one knew who it was, but there's, they sort of think maybe it actually happened in the wild because gladdies are pretty promiscuous. So if you put two together that are reasonably closely related and they're flowering roughly at the same time, there's a good chance they'll drop something that's halfway between the two. Mm. Um, so this is probably a Carneus is one parent and uh, Angustus, I think, was the other one, which is a beautiful soft yellow one in, it, in, its, in its species form. Um, it's a really strong grow. It doesn't seed around. So if you if you had these in an area for 100 years and then ran a rotary hoe or a, a grader over them, mm. they'd be everywhere. Yeah. But if you stick a 10 in the ground, then 20 or 30 years later, you're going to have a couple of hundred in a clump that's about half a metre across. Okay. Um, they can get up to about a metre tall. Um, usually when it's a little bit sh- – if they're in a slightly shadier spot, they're much shorter and – in, when they're in lots of sun and uh, a bit harsher conditions in summer, um, but a really pretty uh, white gladi with purple markings in the th- in the throat. Uh, so that's blushing bride. They're very delicate, aren't they? I love they them. are. Yeah, the, spe- yeah. the species cultivars are much more uh, subtle and delicate than the mm. big mm. lumps mm. of colour that yeah, they've bred. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not a hundred. This is, so this is a a, a similar. Uh, probably similar parentage, the Angustus Carneus sort of hybrid um, as as the bride, uh, as Blushing Bride, sorry. Um, but this one's much more pinker. I, I think I originally bought this one as Rosea, but I don't know if that's a real name. That's the other mm. thing with it, especially the older Gladi cultivars. So I think sometimes people just made up names mm. and 
one might have stuck at some point or something. So I'm not really sure. I think it's Rosea. Again, these get up to over a metre tall. So they're still quite tall, but they're much more elegant than the big uh, hybrid gladdies. Um, the the petals are a little bit smaller and, and there's also some nicer markings on them and things. As I say, they're a bit more subtle. So that's basically a larger form of the bride, a blushing bride. Um, and another really interesting species gladdy that's uh, developed some beautiful high, uh, sort of cultivars and hybrids is uh, Gladiolus cardinalis, which in its species form is this beautiful cardinal red mm. uh, with white markings on the lower petals. And it's, a, I think it's a subtropical species, but it, they grow on cliff faces near waterfalls. So they've got constant water nearly all year round. And like some of the most promiscuous gladdies, their flowering time is spread out quite broadly depending on where they come from in the wild uh so you get lots of hybrids of cardinalis with other things this one's called amanda mayhi and it's sort of a rich sort of salmon watermelon sort of color again with beautiful white markings uh on the lower petals and it's also got this ultraviolet tinge just around the edges of the white as well so it's uh now this is actually quite a big one i've Mm. had these uh over two meters tall and Mm. They they grow well into summer because they've some of their parentage is subtropical or mm. so they so they their growing seasons a lot longer, um, and yeah these these very big flowers, but the other side of the parentage is probably similar similar to the other ones that might be Carneus or something like that, um, and the other one that I've bought in is actually Carneus, so that's it's a uh, little tiny pink flower a lot more this this is a small flower they do get bigger than this um it's very promiscuous (laughs) it has lots of flowers and sets lots of seeds so it's probably not one you'd want to get into the wilderness somewhere yeah um it's never seeds around at home i have to collect the seed and sow them to increase it Mm -hmm. but it it does set a lot of seed and it's uh um also easily easily crossed with uh, a lot of other things. So I've had a little bit of fun with this too. There's there's a guy in Sunbury, uh, Craig Gardner, who's been playing around uh, crossing species gladys that have never been crossed before and some of the results he's coming up with. There's other people doing it as well, mm. uh, but some of the results they're coming up with are absolutely stunning uh, things. So they're... they're um, at, when you over-hybridise something, you, it gets a bit boring and it just blocks the colour and... They're usually bad garden plants because they've been bred as cut flowers or something. Mm-hmm. But when you've got keen bulb growers just starting to play with stuff, you can get <laughs> some really interesting things, I reckon. Yeah. I, I said to you before the, the show started, I've, every time you come in and we're on together all throughout the year, there's you're always bringing in gladdies that are in flower. Yeah. Well, in in the wild, because yeah. they've got such a big spread over Africa, um, from the southernmost parts of South Africa right up to the Mediterranean, um, there's literally one in flower every day. Yes. I, I think there's even a different... You could probably go through the, the uh, pre-sort of human building yeah. uh, cities and, and knocking the, the habitat down, but uh, there would have been a different species of gladiolus flowering every day pretty much, yeah. There, there's, there's a lot of them, mm. um, and they cover really big area in habitat and... You know, and and not just like mountainous and floodplain, but you know, uh, me- uh, Mediterranean climate yeah. through to tropical and semi-desert and or semi-arid. <laughs> they just they're they're 
pretty much everywhere. So it, one of the other gladdies I bought is one of the uh, North African Mediterranean species. I think and that's my favourite colour of all the ones you've brought in. Yeah, the- so th- this is Gladiolus communis. I think it's Byzantinus subspecies. Um, it's funny, all the Mediterranean ones have got exactly the same flower. They're just different sizes and slightly oh, different really? shades of pink or white. Really? So this is one of the darker ones. It's a real sort of dark cerise uh, uh, purpley sort of colour. Yeah. Um, very fine petals. This one can get up to two metres tall and in some areas, is, again, can be a little bit weedy. Um and would it do do would that one and particularly ones that grow around the Mediterranean do well in sort of rocky, dry soils? They, lo- they love it here. Yeah, That's, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the, then you get um, different variations of this, like Gladiolus italicus, comes from Italy, and it's got really thin. So it's the same shaped flower as these ones, but mm. they're much thinner and smaller. It only gets to about thirty centimeters tall. I've got one called Tenuifolius, which is a, a black plum purple. Uh, and it only gets to about 20 centimetres tall. See, that's cute. Um, and <laughs> yes, and there's Atropurpurea, which is like black purple. Yeah. Absolutely stunning. I never had any luck with that. I raised a heap from seed but never got it to flower. Um, and they're more mountainous sort of ones from a bit higher altitude that were a bit more difficult to grow yeah. in our climate. Yeah, all different heights. Yeah. Amazing. Yep. So, And then, as I say, you go down to probably the hot spot is South Africa for them. There's, yeah. there's a huge variety down in South Africa. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you, Greg. We must get to a couple of callers uh, now and we'll say good morning to Eleanor from Warrigal. Hello. Oh, good morning. When I rang up, I only had one really simple, straightforward question in mind, but um, that's developed into three. So <laughs> I might <laughs> I might ring back with the other two because um, they might be longer and I'll wait to see if other people have got questions. We'll see how we're going for time, Eleanor, but you can go for it. Okay. All right. Um, The other two questions are about planting a clematis. I've got a lovely clematis bell of Woking and it's propagated and grown by the Homestead Alameda Homestead Nursery. So that was one question. And the other question was just about a, a straightforward Grevillea Robin Gordon. But the question I was asking in the beginning was an environmentally friendly way, um, asking for a friend to get rid of moss that has um, established itself in artificial turf. So um, I did Google it and looked at things about vinegar and bleach, but I just wondered if there's actually a recipe. Um, And I also talked about drainage that um, sometimes because we've had this particular rainy season, that might be the reason why moss has established itself. But I'm wondering if the panel's got any tips about people who try to have low-maintenance gardens with the um, artificial turf Mm. and what they can do when the moss is there and it sort of um, spoils the look of the the greenery and also a bit difficult when it takes over. Mm. Mm. That's a tricky one. I think I would probably start with something definitely not bleach. Yeah, not bleach. Definitely not bleach. I would probably try something like a good old gurney to start with and using a bit of high pressure. Just a high pressure hose, a gurney if you've got one, try hosing it off to start with. Mm -hmm. Um, Depending on the length of the artificial turf, that may or may not disturb it. You might have Mm -hmm. to re-sand it Yeah, you might have to to re-sand it it because you will... Um, the other thing you could try using is a organic herbicide called Slasher, which is based on a plant oil. Again, right. I'm sorry. 
um, sorry, could you say that name again? Yeah, it's called Slasher. Um, And the bottle says it will target mosses. Um, I'm not sure, however, if it's going to do any damage to your artificial turf. That's the only problem. So you might need to spot test it. Mm, I know that it, um, certain pavers, it can bleach certain pavers. So you might want to spot test it in a indiscreet yeah because it is it is an acid it's, it's an non-anoic acid, acid yeah that's, that's, that's in slash but it is certified organic yeah it is certified organic yeah. yeah so it's definitely a lot safer than using something like bleach which would mm. definitely stain the grass that would definitely mm. stain it um you, you did mention vinegar, and I, I think when I when I first saw your question on the screen eleanor i was thinking vinegar as well yeah um yeah, that's probably about. Can can I that. just? Um, yeah, you could give the winning go. I um, if it, I I would not kill the moss. I think moss is amazing. It's probably for I, the slippery factor, is what I'm well, thinking. Well, yeah, I know, but if it's growing around the edges, I mean, they're beautiful. I'd get mm. down there with a hand lens and actually look <laughs> admire at them. them. I know they're admire beautiful. Admire the moss yeah. and I prefer and, the moss too. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Well, let's not get I, into artificial <laughs> turf, guys. <laughs> no, but it is still important to have the discussion. And I look, obviously, people go for artificial turf for very mm. divergent re- reasons, and you can't yes. care for it perhaps or something like that, but. In some ways, I would actually be celebrating mm. small areas of moss in my artificial Well, and, and if it's a slippery thing, so if it's a pathway that – so where you're walking where it might be slippery, remove it physically from those areas with mm. uh, even yeah. – even Often a, you can just lift it. Yeah. 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 Yep. yeah. Um, or, or scrub it off it with a, a stiff or, broom or yeah. something yeah. like that. Take it off from the areas where it might be a slip issue and leave it everywhere else and enjoy it because yeah, cause, yeah the, there's some really interesting mosses out there yeah, there are some fabulous mosses and they're a really important part of the environment as well yeah all right eleanor your other two questions uh the clematis one could you just say that again sure um i'm um returning to gardening and um normally i just pop potted plants this one was given to me as a lovely gift um it's quite tall and it's got, you know, multiple blooms on it, which are really stunning, um, like a pale lilac colour, a really, really big flower size. Um, I'm in a new garden that I've inherited, so um, it's all planted up, so it's hard to find spaces when you're not designing from the scratch, I've realised. Mm. I think I've found a spot um, where it will do well and it's got something to climb on. But the label surprised me because... <clears throat> When you get a plant label that's gone into so much detail, it makes you think, oh, is this plant going to be tricky to plant and grow? Because um, it mentions that you put the top of the root ball five centimetres below soil level and 35 centimetres from wall. That's okay. Um, And then it's got a detailed diagram where around the root ball, it's got a mixture of loam peat substitute and fertilizer, and then right, um, and then it talks about yep, loosening the main base roots. That's okay. And then right at the bottom of the hole, it's got a little darker section where it says garden compost or rotted manure. And I guess they're things that you may do when you plant a plant anyway. But just the fact that it's on the label made me think, oh, am I going to lose it? Is it tricky to plant? So I've hesitated a bit and. Um, yeah, I just wondered if anyone's got any comments about... Um, I'm just curious about why you actually submerge a clematis 
you know, deeper than the surface of where it's been in the nursery pot. Um, the <coughs> clematis need their roots shaded, so that's why you're going deeper. Um, one of the other things you can do is to put some um, larger rocks or stones over the top of, of where you've where it's been planted, and they love composty soils. So I guess what they're trying to do is get you to give it the best possible um, conditions to let yeah. it survive. It doesn't necessarily mean it won't survive, mm. but they are yeah. beautiful plants, and mm. it's obviously probably a fairly expensive one, and they've done the right thing and told you how you need to do it. But, um, if you think where clematis would grow naturally, they're essentially woodland plants that find their way up as mm -hmm. far into the canopy as they can. And if you think about that, obviously in a woodland situation, the ground's going to be quite cool and protected from the sun, yeah. especially. Yeah. Um, so essentially, basically what they're saying is try and recreate a forest floor, uh, yeah. humus-rich uh, uh, shaded, uh, protected roots from hot sun and um, drying out too much, I guess, at certain times of years, years at least. Uh, yeah, and I, I remember uh, uh, when I had my nursery being next to the Alameda Gardens, uh, I think that's their name, isn't it, the, the Clematis Nursery? The, um, uh, at some of the rare plant fairs being next to their stall and having a chat to them about growing Clematis. And a good, and also planting deep as part of that thing of trying to keep the roots cooler and um, and that seemed uh, when I was speaking to them to be a reasonably important thing that you can do that's a bit easy and uh, usually makes growing of the clematis especially when they're young they sort of settle in a bit better if you if you plant them down a little bit deeper. Yeah, that, that's great to get the the background and um, I feel less hesitant now. <laughs> Have fun, go forth. <laughs> um, and your third question, Eleanor, what was that one again? Yeah, Robin Gordon Grevillea. That's right. Um, I've got mainly a native garden, but I'm delighted to have some things like clematis um, mixed in there. Um, and my, my um, preferred palette would be natives with selected... Uh, Fragrant plants, fragrant and productive plants. That would yep. be my happy mix. Um, not much space to put the Robin Gordon in, but then because it's tall and leggy at the moment, and it's from what I remember, it's fairly tough. With the dimensions of it, I think it gets to, I think it's two metres by 1.5. I think that's what the label said, but again, it's totally dependent on the soil and every other yeah the label condition. says that but they'll they get a little bit bigger than two meters sometimes yeah so yeah. that's what i was again trying to find the right spot but i just wondered can i um contain it to suit where i plant it could i do something creative like because it's got a long leader could i take off the side shoot and um, where i need to walk past allow it to be neatly trimmed and then allow it to be a little bit um, yeah, just any tips on how I might shape it to fit the existing garden that I've moved into? Yeah, you can definitely prune them back. You can prune them back quite hard, but probably one of the best things that you can do for them is to deadhead them when the flowers have died yeah. off and it keeps the yeah. plant nice and tight but not too formally clipped. Um, that would probably be my best recommendations for you. And you can... Yeah, you can you can cut out the tip of the plant now, and it will just uh, start to encourage a lot of um, bushy, uh, wide growth. 
and and yeah you can you can prune them to however you want really um they will push out shoots uh when they get a little bit older all the way up the old wood um most of the grevilleas um of those sorts of hybrids um will push out shoots new shoots from the older wood when they get Mm. pruned and when they get pruned hard they'll they will definitely do that yeah Uh, so yeah but but i I, i'd tip prune them um yeah from from the get-go and yeah them yeah yeah no big believer in that thank you very much for those three um (laughs) guidances it's really really helpful much better than google uh, (laughs) definitely oh we're definitely better than google thank you that's a compliment we appreciate that thanks eleanor and all the best for the show cheers Bye. bye A couple of text messages have come in, guys. Um, Listener Cindy was lucky enough to get the double pass from Open Gardens Victoria to Candlebark uh, property near Yay recently. Um, She just said it was a bear paddock and now it's a wildlife bonanza that Stephen and Vicky have created over the last 30 years. Uh, absolutely loved it. Best day ever. Thanks, guys. And the morning tea was delicious. <laughs> <laughs> good on you. Very good. There are some amazing people out there doing amazing things. I know. Yeah. yeah. It's very exciting. Yeah, I would have loved to have gotten up to yeah. that property in Yay, yeah. but hopefully we open again one day. Uh, another question. Uh, listeners, Rabinia Pseudo Acacia has recently leafed up again as they are deciduous, but they're dropping leave, dropping heaps of leaves do you know why a uh, listener didn't think it should happen until autumn? I'd um, say it was wind. Um, mm. The wind, I know at Forest Glade recently, there's a couple of things, uh, birds, cockatoos, parrots, like yes. ripping stuff off. I'm not sure about the Rabinia, but um, certainly uh, beaches and uh, there's a, a tulip tree at Forest Glade that's being, the bark's being shredded by cockatoos trying to make some habitat for themselves yeah um which we often forget about that they're probably not just being yeah uh, a pain they're actually trying <laughs> to make create some habitat yes, uh, because it's depleted a little bit um so birds might be a poss- possibility possums uh can do some damage to certain trees again i'm not sure about rabinias uh, but even like the weather we've had there's a possibility that a uh, storm whips through flips because the the foliage is quite young and fresh the wind whips through and heavy rain and it can actually take a lot of leaves off Uh, and the other possibility especially if the tree's looking a bit ill as well um is maybe it's got it's waterlogged and it's actually losing straight away with all the rain yeah so a few different options there yeah but look rabinia's are pretty tough so yeah, it'll probably bounce back. It'll I'd probably say. bounce back. So <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't worry too much. Yep. yep. And if it is an established one, then yeah. yeah, good. All right. Thanks, team. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is Chloe Foster, and in the studio with me today is Penny Woodward, Greg Balderston, and Chloe Thompson. If you have a question or want to join the conversation, the number is 94190155, or our text message line is 0488809855. We can't accept, we can't open up photos, images via the text line. If you do want to send images with a garden conundrum or ID that you need help with, you'll have to send uh, the image in an email to us. 
and our email address is gardening at 3cr.org.au. Now, Penny, we were talking about garlic at the moment, two things, harvesting and side sprouting. Now, what's going on with side sprouting at the moment? So side sprouting is also called brooming. Um, And it happens at a particular developmental stage in garlic if you get a weird climate event. So um, it's happening more and more because of climate change, because garlic, when you plant it, it actually adapts to the area where it's growing. So if you collect your cloves and replant the best ones each year, it's adapting to your soil and your climate and all that sort of thing. And then all of a sudden you get 60 millimetres of rain in Mm -hmm. October, um, when it should be starting to dry out and um, and the garlic garlic bulbs with a combination of increased temperature and um, um, lengthening days are the two things that trigger bulbing. If you then suddenly get 60 mil of rain, um, all the outside leaves of the cloves, so the clove skins, start sprouting. So you end up with, instead of just the leaves mm. forming the pseudo stem you end up with all this green growth coming through the pseudo stem sometimes you'll even get extra scapes which are the stems that so i was at a friend's place the other day and all her garlic was looking beautiful except for the last row she was growing about eight different cultivars and it's one of the reasons why it's really important to grow a whole lot of different cultivars not just one because if you are growing just the one and they're all at the same developmental stage and you get this heavy rain, all of them will side sprout. If you've got eight different cultivars, they're all at slightly different stages and only one of her cultivars was doing the the side sprouting. So Mm. I've got a photograph. I brought my garlic book along. I've got a photograph of what happens in the book and it's it's actually pretty dramatic so that the cloves are actually almost unusable. The only way yeah. you can use them is for green garlic. Mm. Yeah, you can so you dry can just store eat those. them, you can't yeah. cure them. Yeah. Um, if you see it happening early on and your garlic is well enough developed, you just harvest them as quickly yeah. as you can and go for the smaller bulbs. It seems that it's not carried over in the clove, so the, the, um, you still need the climate event. To yes. make the side spread. It's not happen. in the memory it's of the cloves. It's not in the yeah. memory yeah. of the cloves to, to do this because it's the cloves suddenly deciding, uh oh, something's gone wrong. We need to produce scapes. Yep. And, or taking um, advantage of the situation, maybe yeah. to produce some more yeah. sugars and make yeah. their bulbs bigger. Yeah. To, yeah. Yeah. yeah, all of that. But once they get to the point, um, and I've, I did actually put these, these pictures up on Facebook, I sent it to Liz Great. so Thank you. people can look at them there. Um, basically, there's nothing you can do about it. So you harvest them as green garlic. Um, you can try curing them if it hasn't gone too far. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, the bulb is, apart from being used as green garlic, so you use the fresh leaves yeah. and the forming cloves, and it, you can use that in all sorts of things. Um, there's, you can't cure them, so you yeah. can't store them in any way. Yeah. So I just think it was worth talking about because of all the weird, and it seems to particularly happen with heavy rainfall out of the, at, at the particular development stage yeah. of the of the garlic. Interesting. There's there's a lot of weird weather that we've been having this spring, and then yeah. in the last, the humidity we've had in the last few weeks has mm. been 
I'd be interested to see how everyone's veggie gardens go. Well, this I mean, year. We've, we've had mm. heaps of humidity, but it's been cold, so mm. it yep. hasn't been too bad. But our plants are not used to the warmth and the humidity. Yes. So that yep. intense humidity that you get further north. Mm. Um, I think tomatoes may well struggle if it continues like this. We're going to be getting more diseases um, in, in your tomatoes, and there's not a lot you can do about it. Um, keep an eye out for powdery mildew in particular. I got a bit of powdery mildew on my tomatoes last year. And the, and the, the thing that um, lets you know that it's starting to form are the little black and yellow lady beetles. Mm, so if you're seeing them yeah. on your tomatoes, you may not have noticed the powdery mildew yet, but if you're seeing the black and yellow ladybirds, you need to get your lower leaves off because it always attacks the lower leaves first, remove yeah. the lower leaves and maybe give them a precautionary spray of um, uh, dilute milk or something yep. in yeah. the morning, not in the afternoon or you'll make it worse, yeah. um, and, or, or, one, or echo-organic fungicide. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you're going to have to watch all sorts of things for fungal diseases. I reckon this is the year that we we all hard prune our tomatoes. Yeah. You know, we don't let them turn into giant woolly mm. bushes, yeah. which I know I've been guilty of in the past and because then, you, yeah. you sort of forget and yes. then five minutes later the plants are enormous. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But I think this year is the year that we definitely hard yeah, prune well, things. Yeah, well, certainly I'd be taking off the lower leaves. Exactly, lower so leaves. So that you're getting sure. good air movement yeah, around, the, around the base. Yep. Um, I'd also be deep planting my tomatoes, yeah, did that. so that so that you're getting adventitious roots and they're well into the ground. And you know, if we suddenly if it suddenly turns dry, which you know anything can happen, yep. then you've got you've got lots of roots. Growing. I've had great success with things like my zucchinis as well to prevent mm. them getting powdery mildew. Is um, tying them to a stake, okay, so getting them up, off the ground, yeah, yep. up and off the ground, pruning yep. off those lower leaves, yes. and just as the plant grows, it almost turns into a vine itself, yeah. but. It's yeah. that, yeah, yes. air movement up and off the ground. Yep. Yeah, and not crowding them too much. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, important. Those sort of cultural practices are control methods in their own mm. for yeah, fungal totally. diseases. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's one of the only effective ways to, to deal with fungal because once and it's you've got it. Fruit trees too. Mm. Yeah. So if you've got really dense fruit trees, go through and cut out some of the intervening branches yep. right up to the trunk so that you're getting more air movement yep. through the trees. Well. Yep, yeah, for sure. Air movement's really important. Mm. Um, with the eco-fungicide, so the active ingredient in that is something called potassium bicarbonate. bicarbonate. Yeah. I've had success using sodium, sodium bicarbonate. bicarbonate. Yep. Heaped, heaped spoonful into a litre yep. of water yep. and it's been I've dealt yep. with powder, um, powdery peach leaf curl okay. with it as well because mm. I, I ran out of eco-fungicide during a lockdown <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, look, it, they both work I, yeah. in my experience I think the, the potassium bicarbonate is a bit better but but the um, yeah well, there's probably a reason that yeah. the product is using yeah. potassium and not sodium yeah. bicarbonate yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so, but look, yes, any those simple things are the best ones to yeah. try. And, and these days, I copper is often recommended for curly leaf. Yeah. I try not to use copper. Me too. Because I copper is it. killing the fungus, fungi in the soil. It's so, really broad spectrum. Yeah. 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 And we've, you know, we're coming to just realise how important the soil fungi is and that. There's more good ones than there are bad ones. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yes, <laughs> I agree. Yeah. yeah, so go for other things. But it's the same with the insects as well, isn't it? It's, it's, mm. it's yeah, if totally. you knock everything on the head, yeah. then what's going to fill that first are usually, usually the bad the ones. Coming back <laughs> so you try yeah. and keep the good ones. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys, a question from uh, Daylene in Druin. 
Um, she has a wisteria flowering absolutely beautifully, but wants to know when to cut it back. Pruning of wisterias. I usually cut the ones at Forest Glade after they finish flowering, before mm-hmm. they shoot off too much. Um, I mean, the wisteria is probably not going to really care because they're mm-hmm. just thugs. Um, <laughs> but Pretty yeah, thugs. you want to enjoy the flower. I think the flowers usually don't happen on fresh growth. So if you cut too much off before flowering, you're not going to get any flowers. Mm. So you may as well let it flower first. And then as soon as it's finished flowering or as soon as it's past its best, hack it back to whatever you need it. So it's got yeah. the rest of the year to put on new growth and, uh, you know, maybe grow some new wood to have flowers on next year. Yeah. I think you cut back to you leave a few nodes off each of those um, vines mm. that, that come off and, and but not all the way back to the main leader. Yeah, trunk. leave a little bit yeah. for, for new flowers. Um, but it depends what stage is that too. There's been a couple of wisterias at Forest Glade that hadn't been pruned for 20 years or so and yeah, they were okay. just wild. wild. <laughs> <laughs> and it took me the best part of a day or two to get them back to trunks that were manageable mm. so it was contained to the one arbor it was actually planted to be on yes. rather than the surrounding trees and everything else <laughs> um so it depends what if it's if it's pruned regularly yeah as you say let it flower then cut it back a couple of nodes uh almost like a bonsai almost you mm. sort of cut it back to a few nodes mm. uh, let, let it have an, a couple of nodes each year mm. that, that it can flower from the next year yeah. and then you get more flowers each year yeah but great. it's still under control somewhat yeah Good. Thanks, Greg. All right, another text message question. Um, listener Ange in Belgrave has a forest pansy, Circus. It didn't flower after its winter dormancy. It had buds and then we had a late frost but still no signs of flowers or leaves. Do you think it will come back? The leaves I wouldn't be worried about yet. There's a, a weeping Circus that I planted a few years ago at Forest Glade that's just starting to leaf up now. Um, I killed uh, My forest pansy died years ago uh, mm-hmm. from overwater, actually, from another wet year. I think it was 2010. We got heaps of rain in summer that's and it when didn't the like that. broke, yep. Um, but the other surface I have out the back at home had heaps of flowers on it this year, so I'm not sure mm. why it wouldn't. If it regularly flowers and it hasn't this year, I'm, it's obviously got something to do with the weather, but I don't mm-hmm. know what. If it's um, yeah. heavier soil, is that going to be a problem? Well, it, it, I'd sort of look at where they come from. So uh, forest pansies canadensis, I, I'd say, yeah, um, it might be the warmer weather maybe or the sort of more humid because mm. even though it's been raining a lot, it, winter wasn't that cold. Like it wasn't it, – it got cold late and it didn't stay cold for very long. Mm. It's just not hot either. It's, mm. It was sort of this in, in between – um, so it might have something to do with that. I don't, don't really know. But the Siliquastrum cirsus that I have at home flowered really well, but they might come from a different climate that mm. enjoys this sort of more weather <laughs> than yeah. the others. But the, don't give up hope on the leaf. If you look closely, because especially forest pansy, the buds are, are almost black. They're really dark purpley black, and they're actually really hard to see. Most plants you look at when they're coming into leaf – and they're these bright green bursting mm. buds that come out. But forest pansies, you, you get really close and then you notice there's all these little dark specks up the, mm, okay. up the stalk. So if you look close, you should be seeing some movement by now, definitely. But it, 
don't stress too much because as I say, I just checked the one at Forest Glade because I thought the same thing that yeah. it wasn't coming out, and it had uh, it, it had little leaves just popping out of their buds all the way up the stems. So it might be just a little bit late this year. So Ange, go out and, and get your micro microscope and and have a close look at the at your forest pansy. There might be some buds coming along. All right, our number is nine four one nine zero one double five. If you want to ask us a question. And the text message line is 0488809855. Chloe, you brought in a lovely little selection of plants. I did, I did. I brought along two things that I've been chatting about on my socials a fair bit lately and also with my Sprout School students. So I brought in some beautiful calistamine or bottle brush. They're um, all looking gorgeous. They look mm. stunning, yeah. yes. However, there are a few near me that I drive past and make my eye twitch because they haven't been pruned in forever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you've got a bottle brush um, that you're noticing is like really bare and miserable on the inside, it's got like maybe one or two flowers on the outer tips and stuff, really encourage people to go in um, after the flowering season and give them a really hard prune. Um, the bunch that lined my driveway um, when we first moved in looked like that. They were, you know, sticks with all the dead sticks on the interior leggy barely a flower on them um and that spring i just hacked them back Mm. like skeleton pruned them hacked them back to to twigs yeah um fed them up and they're now bushy full of life full of flowers the birds go bananas Mm. for them and they look beautiful um if you don't need to give them as hard a prune as that then definitely just tip prune them and take off those um spent flowers at the end of the flowering season and that's what Um, you do if you do give them a hard prune the following years after that you just need to tip prune them and take those spent flower heads off yep and they stay nice and bushy yes yeah. A, lot, a lot of those shrubs too have a finite lifespan unless you cut them back really mm, hard. So yeah. a lot of acacias and other yeah. things, they've only got a fairly short lifespan if you just let them do their own thing. Particularly yeah. acacias. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you coppice them or, or hack back hack them back every few years, they, that's the that they'll live forever if as long as yeah. you keep doing that. Yeah. It's yeah. that wildfire, you know, they're, yeah, that's yeah. almost mm-hmm. what they're used to. Um yeah. so yeah, if you if your bottle brush is looking pretty miserable, perhaps it needs um a hard haircut. So that that would, one's a particularly tip. bright red. Do you know Just, what cultivar it is? No idea. Sorry, sorry for asking. I know. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Again, this is an, a, one of the few plants that was on my property when we moved in. Yeah. So um, no idea. But it's very sweet. Got lovely red flowers and the birds go nuts. Love a bottle brush. Yes. They're one of my favourites because they do really well in wet spots, mm. but also in really hard, dry soil, which would be at your place. Yeah, this is <laughs> in, on a slope. This is in actually raised beds, like terracing beds that are essential because we're on a slope. So the beds were put in and they're half filled with builder's rubble. Yeah. So the people, when they built the house, you know, put in terracing because otherwise the driveway would not be able to exist. Yeah. But they half filled the beds with builder's rubble. So it's really... Really free draining, yeah. like ridiculously free draining. <laughs> <laughs> but they're happy. <laughs> Very happy. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Yep. Um, the other guy I brought along was just one of my favourite ground covers, the fine leaf form uh, of Myoporum. I've got this that cascades. Wait, over. hang on, Chloe. Tell us the common name. This is the only decent common name around. The boobilialia. Creeping boobilialia. Creeping boobilialia. Creeping boobilialia. I know, it's the craziest name. Um, but I have both the fine leaf and the broadleaf form of the Myoporum. I love the fine leaf form mm. to use as a cascade, so planted on like a retaining wall and then cascading over the sides. I think it looks particularly soft and beautiful mm-hmm. and elegant like that. It 
doesn't tolerate foot traffic as well as the broadleaf. So I use the broadleaf myoporum on the edges of garden beds where it sort of creeps over and softens the edges of paths. Mm -hmm. um, and it can tolerate a bit of foot traffic and things I find at my place. So I've just been really big on talking with my students and on socials about ground covers lately because just how fabulous they are as a living mulch, helping to keep the soil covered, they're helping to suppress weeds um, and they just create that, that you know, third or fourth Why or have fifth a blank dimension. Space. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, blank spaces are just habitat for weeds. Yeah, yeah. amen. <laughs> um, whereas, yeah, these become a gorgeous little habitat. I've noticed actually on the areas of retaining wall where I've got this fine leaf myoporum hanging over the edge, underneath it is all sorts of little lizards and skinks. Yeah, and, great. Um, so they and, love and it And they too. flower, they have a really long flowering period too, those myoporum yeah, species. Yeah, they seem to, I can't quite define when the flowers yeah. pop up. It must just be multiple times yeah. throughout the year. Yeah, but the ones I've got have lovely little white star-shaped flowers. <laughs> and so they look really pretty against the green foliage. The ones that you that aren't falling over a, a wall, mm -hmm. um, how do you prune them? The so the broadleaf ones that I have coming over the edge mm. of the path, I literally just come along with a secateur, or if yeah. I if I knock a section off, that's my pruning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, both the ones that are over the edge or the ones on the ground, you can use hedging shears. Mm. Whippersnippers are really good too. I was going to say I use that. Snippers for everything. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're, that's how tolerant they are. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'd, Absolutely. Like, so some of the pathways at Forest Glade, I literally, at the right time of the year, walk down there with my whippersnipper that's and anything clever. that's coming in, I just... Yep, <laughs> and, uh, it's got good reach and, and it's much faster than... And you just clean up, you know, the thicker stems that leaves a bit of mess. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm a big fan of the hedge pruner because I can't be bothered going around doing individual yeah, yeah. hedge pruning. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great yeah. tool. Yeah. Multi-use. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, no, that's one of my favourites, and I think it's probably a bit underrated, but it's it looks beautiful against silvery plants and mm. um, just such a good ground cover. Yeah, no, they're a fantastic ground cover. Um, our number is 94190155 if you want to join the conversation. And we've got a caller coming in now that I'm just going to put through. Um, good morning, Chris. Good morning. How, How are, are you? you? Good morning. I'm well indeed. Uh, what's your question, Chris? The, I, just, um, I called in last week. I'm the uh, treasurer of the Bromeliad Society, and I called in last week, and um, you were kind enough to let me um, advise the public the, about our show down at um, the Wishart Centre at 964 Nepean Highway. Um, that we had a, quite a number of people come through yesterday that um, heard about it on 3CR, which is fantastic. Brilliant. And um, I'm just um, wanting to remind people that it's on again today from 10 until 3. Fantastic. Chris, um, I'm glad you had a lot of people come and, and a lot of listeners from the show. That's fantastic. No, no, it's really good. It's, it's one of, I think, the best sort of uh, way of getting information around to yeah. um, the gardening types around Melbourne. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, if there's any community groups out there, send us, um, you know, information of your events or even just if you want to get word out there about your group itself. So, yep. Chris, can you just give us the address again for the yeah, show? 964 Nepean Highway, Moorabbin. Mm -hmm. So it's just south of South Road. Yep. And um, it's called the NG Wishart Senior Citizens Centre. Um, and there's signs up at the front and that sort of stuff. So it's today, 10 till 3. Um, 
there's still lots of there's a beautiful display of probably 500 at least different um, so, uh, sorts of bromeliads from very small ones to very big ones and pink ones and white ones and green ones and all sorts of colours um, and uh, look spectacular um, and lots of plants for sale. Fantastic. All right, Chris, thanks for calling up and yep. um, hope it all goes well today. Thanks, thanks, Kylie. No worries. Thanks. Cheers. Okay, bye. bye. Okay, Greg, I've been wanting to talk about this plant all morning and I'm saving like the best till almost last. It's uh, it's one of my favourite plants out there. And we're lucky we haven't and not been for good reasons. out. I was about to say that. <laughs> yeah. Is my hay fever that bad that I can't <laughs> no, smell no, it? No, no, no. One of the only reasons I bought this in is because I think either the rain's washed the smell away or it's been open long enough where the, the okay. smell's gone. So... Um, <laughs> It's a plant called uh, Helicodocerus muscovorus. Uh, one of the common names is dead horse arum. How uh, <laughs> And it's a really interesting plant. This, uh, th- this plant's probably responsible for my interest in fungi, I reckon, because fungi do similar things uh, through th- their evolution and the morphology and stuff is similar to what some fungi do, where they're, they're like, they go to extreme lengths to... Uh, uh, appropriate insects or, or bacteria or plants or, you know, through their symbiotic relationships. So uh, it, this comes, it's, it's an aroid, it's, a, it's in the Arum family, uh, it comes from the, uh, some small nesting islands in the Mediterranean, bird nesting sites, and it flowers at roughly the same time or exactly the same time as those birds nest on those islands. Mm. And what it's after are fly pollinators. So the flower smells like you would imagine a bird nesting island would smell like during nesting season. There's <laughs> bird poo, dead animals, uh, and lots of flies. So this is competing with those smells to try and attract those pollinators. Um, it's not a little thing either, as you can see. No. Uh, 30 se- well. 40, 40 yeah, to 50 centimetres. Yeah. Even if you straighten it out, it's, it's quite bent. Yeah, because it's on a bit of a dog leg. So a, a, a very closely related plant's the Dracunculus vulgaris, which is a bit more upright and taller. This one is lower to the ground, so the foliage gets up to somewhere between 50 and 80 centimetres tall. Beautiful split uh, aroid foliage. And then the flower sort of... At, at the start grows up with the foliage like it's pointing straight this big spike going up into the into the sky and then it's a certain point in its development it gets a kink in it mm. so instead of the flower opening up like a normal arum lily where the spade's upright mm. and the spadix points up to the sky this one folds down so it it, it unfolds out to the ground oh. and it's pointing sort of horizontal across the ground um so this is sort of where it starts to get a bit weird. When it <laughs> just opens, just starting to get weird. <laughs> yeah, when, when it's when it's when it when it's opening, it starts to inflate like a football. So it sort of gets this, and you, every day you go out and you go, "It's going to be open today," and it just never is. And then one day it'll you go out and it's it's cracked open. And when it first opens, the weird thing is it smells like fresh mincemeat, which is really bizarre, <laughs> and I'm not sure why, but it does smell like fresh mincemeat. Yeah. Uh, and it's a similar colour. It's sort of, uh, a, it looks like, you know, a like red meat. Like a pinky it, colour. It's a pinkish, mm-hmm. a, a nice, crisp, pinkish, reddish mm-hmm. uh, mince meat colour. Um, and as it opens, 
smells like fresh mincemeat. And then within maybe two, three hours, the color of the whole inflorescence goes from that uh, nice fresh mincemeat color to this really off pale green. <laughs> um, it, it, it sort of faded a little bit here. So even the outer, the Outer yeah, the, the outer the outer of the spathe too. is is beautiful. It's so, so it's sort of blotched cream and burgundy brownie sort of colours. Does that start off pinker? Uh, no, no, that's pretty much the same colour yep. as it comes out. So so as the spathe is emerging, it's 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 like this uh, cream spike with little brownie mm. burgundy splotches all over it, and then it opens up to this red colour. It within a few hours, it'll go this really horrible pallid green. And that's when it smells like a bag of sausages that you left in your car for a few hours in summer, or a few days, actually, is probably a better description. I have no idea what that smell is. Oh, it's... Yeah, I'm glad this doesn't smell today because it is... Like, it's such an interesting plant, but a lot of these aroids I've never bought into the radio show because I can't bring them in here. I think I bought Aram Pictum in once. And it was just like too much. It's just uh, I, the drive down in the car with Aaron Pictum. Oh, I, like open. It, it, the smell tattooed itself in my nose. It was just, it was horrendous. Uh, so that's the only reason I bought it in because it, it doesn't smell. So um, yeah, this horrible smell for a few hours. Mm. And in that few hours, all the flies climb onto this flower, which literally looks like a dead animal's bottom. It does. If like you it's look got on the inside of it. And, um, I'll open it up. It, it doesn't smell. I can't guarantee it's not full of maggots, though. Because <laughs> uh, maggots play an important part. Yeah, they do. Yeah. So, oh my goodness! It does look. It's got so a little it's, bottom it's, hole as well. It's got it short. It, it's more. I guess the closest thing would be imagine a dead pig's bottom. That's about. <laughs> yeah. So it's even got a tail. So, the yeah. spadix is hairy, like an animal's yeah, it is tail. Hairy. Greg, That's you've put bit. photos of this. I have got. Bottom. I've sent Lizzie. I've actually sent her a, a nice photo okay. of what it looks like when it's at its peak. Yeah. The one I bought in is a little bit spent, so it looks a lot more like a dead <laughs> <laughs> something. So anyway, it opens up, starts smelling. The flies land on it. They find the aperture. <laughs> which you could probably call other things, and crawl into the base of the flower yep. where the smell's coming from. And the walls are quite slick on the inside of the chamber at the bottom mm-hmm. of the spadix. Um, and they can get in, but they can't get out. Yeah. Uh, if you've ever looked at an aroid flower, which are really interesting, the the spadix, which you see at the top, doesn't really do anything other than be there. Mm. It's only once you get down into the chamber where you've got uh, often male and female parts of the flower that are separated by sterile forms of the same thing that act like little fingers. So in this, you've got these little fingers separating them. The flies fall in past the fingers, but they can't mm. crawl up the walls and they can't crawl up the spadix uh, because of these little fingers coming out. Mm. There's nectaries at the bottom of the chamber which feed the flies because it's not eating them. It actually wants to use them as pollinators, so it keeps them alive and feeds the flies. And then after about 10 or 12 hours, the little fingers shrivel up and the pollen sacs all open and the flies crawl up the spadix across the pollen sacs and get covered in pollen and hopefully repeat the process with another one and that's how they get pollinated. Now, the the symbiotic relationship... So when when it's in full peak on a warm day, uh, which it usually is at this time of year, this... It's noisy. It doesn't just smell really bad. It's You can hear the flies buzzing and, as I say, there's maggots crawling out of it. It's wow. just horrendous. 
so, you say with a smile on your face. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I, it's just so such cool morphology. Yeah, yeah. No, this is uh, great. So in the wild, there's also a species of lizard that have a pretty close symbiotic relationship with these things where at this time of the year when they're flowering, this little lizard obviously has a few snacks on some of the flies and maggots and other little insects that have crawled in there. Mm. Um, at night time, like a lot of aroids, oh, well, it does it during the day too, but uh, aroids use a... I th- they believe it's a radioactive isotope of potassium to create their own heat. Um, there's a simpler carpus in North America that actually melt through snow with their flowers. They, they can oh. create such mm. ambient temperature from them. But a lot of aroids actually, their flowers are warmer than, than the surrounding air around them because of this radioactive isotope of potassium or whatever the, the cause is that they do it. And the lizard makes use of this at night time to keep warm. So it snuggles up in and around the spade, uh, the oh. flower, the inflorescence to keep warm at night. Jeepers. And then it hangs around because the base of the chamber around the female parts of the flower remains intact even once the inflorescence has deteriorated uh, to protect the seeds. And the lizard actually lives inside those and keeps bugs from eating the seeds until they're ripe, mm. which it then eats and carries them off and deposits them uh, in different places in the cracks in the bird nesting. So it's got they've got this really cool symbiotic Whoa. relationship with the uh, insects and, w- and w- animals. With the insects and animals. Yeah. Um, and there's the the last thing. So one of the first people to bring this back to England in the days that that was a thing that was important uh, was E. A. Bowles, who's uh, quite a famous sort of. Um, uh, bulb grower. He introduced a lot of bulbs into the gardens of England and Europe. And I, just, he, the, I, I remember uh, getting a book and reading a verse of his about when he bought this back and the first time he saw it flowering in captivity. Um, and he wrote, the most fiendish plant I know, the sort of thing Beelzebub might uh, pluck to make a bouquet for his mother-in-law. <laughs> A mingling of unwholesome greens, purples, and pallid pinks, the livery of putrescence. In fact, it only exhales its stench for a few hours after opening, and during that time it is better to stand far off and observe it through a telescope. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, it's one of my favourite plants. <laughs> I, I can understand why. That's, that's extraordinary. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. thank you for bringing it in. I'm sure it's, it's one of the few times where I wish we had television. So yeah, 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 yeah. But thankfully we don't have smell television. Yeah, yeah. And I have got some. So if you are interested in seeing, there's, I think it's from last year or the year before, a photo that I've sent in to Lizzie of a, of a really nice specimen. Yeah. Um, but if you are on my Facebook page and you go through all my photo albums, mm. you look out for the ones that are titled Aroids, mm. and if you look through there, you'll find, uh, you'll find some pictures mm. of the Helicodosterus. It's a really interesting plant. Yeah, great. So just say the botanical name again. Heli- uh, Helicodosterus uh, muscovorus. Muscovorus. And if someone wanted to buy one, um, where would they go? The first place I would suggest would be Tonkin's Bulbs. Okay. Uh, it's, it's one of those... Th- things where like I talk about it like it's the best thing ever and I've done quite a lot of public speaking where I talk about these things and everyone's like oh yuck (laughs) (laughs) so it's um it's probably not high in demand I don't think for for, so I'd try Jane uh first up at Tonkin's Mm. Bulbs where do you have it growing 
again, it's Mediterranean, so it's pretty much as long as it's dry in summer. Yeah, okay. And gets sun in winter, it's yeah. fine. Is it in yeah. the ground? Yeah, yeah I've got place? it in the ground. Yeah. 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 Um, it'd do well in pots, though, because it literally lives in rock crevices on a mm. small island in the Mediterranean. Uh, Is it restricted a, to that island? I, I think it's a couple of islands. Okay. But there, there's, um, as I say, the Dracunculus... Uh, Grow, which are its close relative, grow on the uh, around the edges of the Mediterranean. I'm pretty sure this one's only restricted to the bird nesting islands, or that's where it evolved, at least anyway. Um, uh, but there's because uh, Dracunculus don't smell mu- smell much better than these. Uh, yeah. There's some good colour variation in the Dracunculus, and they're a bit taller and probably more structurally more pleasant to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, they smell more like dead rats rather than bags of sausages. Great. <laughs> I'm glad that you know the difference between a dead yeah, rat and a there know, is a diff- dead There's a diff- definitely a different smell, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, they're, they're Mediterranean, so so easy to grow in a well-drained mm. dry summer, cold, mm. wet winter. Yeah. Um, and, and they're really attractive plants apart from when they're flowering. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other good it. thing about arums is especially the smelly ones – is often, especially when you've got rare little bulbs, if you're not out looking for them all the time, you forget that they're there and you miss their flowering. Mm-hmm. You don't miss this because no. you walk out and you go, oh, what's that smell? And Oh, my flowers. And you, yeah, <laughs> of So it's like a little alarm yeah. alarm bell. So it's uh, not like, you know, jasmine when you walk outside and you can yeah. smell no, and that's like quite that pleasant. <laughs> you walk outside and you can smell you a go, dead animal. Oh, dead animal. Oh, that's right. My <laughs> arms flowering. are flowering. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Greg, thanks for bringing that in. Um, all right, we've got another uh, text line question. So our number is nine four one nine zero one double five, and we're here till quarter past nine. Our text message line is o four double eight eight zero nine eight five five. I've got a bulb-related question for you, Greg. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Paul is asking about his black pearl lily, aka Arab Eye, is the last remaining one that he's got in a pot and it has just flowered, how do I collect the seed and grow more plants? The first thing about – it's on ornithogalum. I can't remember what the species of that one would be because I'm not very good with common names, mm-hmm. but it would be one of the ornithogalums, I'm assuming. Um, the first thing about collecting seed is make sure you're going to get some. So, And, again, I'm not sure with ornithogalums if they are self-fertile, but it's what I would do is – to make sure, go out with a little paintbrush mm. and tickle all the anthers and and um, uh, make sure it gets and pollinated. make sure it gets pollen. Make sure it gets some pollen in there to make some seed. Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure they they are self fertile, but uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. But that that would be the first thing is go out now while it's flowering and go across the flowers with a little paintbrush or something and dust. Make sure everything gets dusted with yeah. pollen. Uh, and then make sure the the racine stays intact until the seeds are ripe. Don't pick too early. Um, a lot of those... Would you wait until it starts to dry out a little bit? Well, a lot of those... Uh, so uh, alliums, for instance, pretty much... Like I've got alliums uh, at home where I can you could pick the flower. I think I've done this before, especially the bigger flowered one. You can pick, pick the flower while it's in full bloom mm. And there's enough energy, like most of the energy it needs to set seeds is already in the stem, so it doesn't need the bulb anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm assuming with a lot of alliums, the bulb's pretty much shut down, like while the flower's still in full flight. So uh, 
but I would leave it as long as possible and keep it as good as possible until you can start to see the seed heads start to crack. Most of the ornithogallums, I think, have blackish, little blackish seeds from memory. Are they like a poppy seed size or bigger? bigger? Yeah. Oh, that's good. Um, uh, More sort of like canola-sized little beads, I guess, but they're they're generally black from memory. Mm. Um, But wait until the the flower I seem actually starts to go yellowish and not vibrant green anymore mm-hmm. and the seed pods have sort of got to their swollen max and maybe are starting to split because you don't want to lose the seeds either. Mm, yeah. Uh, and then just pick and pop in a dry paper bag till autumn and then sow and put out in all the elements. A lot of those sort of Mediterranean climate bulbs like frost and cold weather on them in autumn to get them to germinate. Yep. Um, and don't sow too deep and well-drained so sort so of gritty potting mix. Out in a, yeah, in a pot, in yeah, that sort of potting so mix, to, and just I put s- it outside. Yeah, I used to put them in six-inch pots and then sieve some, um, like, scoria mm-hmm. sieve, sievings over the top of them, mm-hmm. um, uh, like well-washed, very fine gravel, not too deep, and then just sit it out in the elements. And hopefully, if, yeah, you get a bit of cold weather or frost, it, yep. it should break the dormancy and away it'll go. They should germinate pretty easily, I think. Okay. Yeah. If, if you don't get frosts, could you put it in the fridge or the freezer? I, yeah, I'm not sure because I've never had to worry about that. No, I mean, I don't get heavy frost. People but like it's, me who live near the sea yeah, have to yeah. think about these things. Um, mm. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's It certainly probably wouldn't hurt because yeah. it's – as I say, I'd, I'd look at where – and this goes with most plants, I guess. You look at where they come, come from, from. Mm. and yep. try and mimic as yep. close as you can. Uh, so they're a winter growing thing, mm. a winter and spring growing bulb. So it's not going to germinate in the middle of summer. And if you mm. do germinate in the middle of summer, it's probably going to die because mm. it's going to be really confused. So if it comes from a place that's a hot, dry summer, you keep the seeds stored, uh, you know, in a, in a coolish sort of dry mm. place for the summer. And then, yeah, if it's cold, wet winters, then you try and give them a bit of cold, cold. Yeah. Um, and start watering them a little bit and, yeah, Yep. If, if they're understory plants, you give them a little bit more shade. And if they're sort of arid plants or from a uh, deciduous forest or something, they probably want a bit more light while they're growing and yep. things like Yeah, so looking at where they come from is a really good mm. – from any – you know, pretty much any plant. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, great. Thanks, Greg. All right, we've got another caller on the line. Um, and from Northcote, good morning. Hi. Good morning, everyone. Penny, I've got a little question about milk on powdery mildew. Yep. Does it matter? I use organic, but does it matter if it's a little bit sour? Because I imagine when it goes into the sun, it turns sour pretty quickly anyway. Uh, look, I would think not. Uh, I haven't tried using sour milk, but my experience of using milk is it actually doesn't matter what milk you use it can be anything from skinny milk all the way through it can be long life milk it can even be powdered milk um the whole milk thing was discovered in i think it was actually in india where they were where they were um throwing old discarded milk out on over crops um not intending to do anything with it and then found that that where the milk had been discarded that the plants didn't get powdery mildew and everything else did so that's it might be a bacterial thing too because uh, yeah. I was, funnily enough just reading last night on getting lichen and moss to grow on rocks 
And that usually involves milk Milk. and yogurt things as well. So it's probably encouraging healthy stuff that might attack the powdery mildew as much as it's killing the powdery mildew. Yeah, Yeah. so look, I would use it for sure. Mm. I don't think that would be a problem. That's all right. Can I ask one other? Yes. Thank you. I've got three hibiscus and I I cut them back really hard because a new fence was coming and they were pretty straggly. And one of them hasn't um, started to leaf. Um, how long should I give it before I pronounce it dead? I I think that oh, it's the a- reason that they they didn't do so well is because I did it and then we had frost. Yeah, look, it, it, it it's tricky with those things that are a bit frost tender. Um, quite often they'll come back from further down the plant and they'll take a bit longer. And look, we're having such weird seasons that I wouldn't give up on anything too quickly at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. If I scratch back the, the bark and it's green, yeah, it's I've, still got life, yeah? yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, I'll give it a bit longer. Thank you. No All worries. Right. Thanks for both. No Bye worries. for now. See you. Penny, we'll get to that Organic Gardener magazine in a moment. I know. Uh, we just had a quick text message come through. Um, listener Peter has had his son dig up and dump at his place some 2 by 1.5 or so metre hydrangeas. He said they're basically bare-rooted. How can he re-establish them? Prune them really hard. Yep. Find the lowest possible buds that mm-hmm. have developed on the stems and cut them down to those. Get them in out, like don't let the roots dry out at all. Yeah. Uh, and water them with sea salt every week for this year. Yep. <laughs> for the next year. Oh, for the for the for, rest of summer. For, oh, yeah. rest of summer. Yeah. Yep. I'd say that's that's probably the best. Yeah. They, they could. They that's do. Right. It won't. It won't be a healthy tough, plant for a while though. Yeah. yeah. It's gonna, it might be struggling a little bit. I totally. Think, stage. Totally concur. Because yeah, yeah Heidi's do shift really well, uh, but yeah, just. Not at this time of the year, generally, yeah. <laughs> especially if they're yeah. bare-rooted. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, great. Um, all right, good luck, uh, Peter. Penny, Organic Gardener magazine. Okay, so I wanted to particularly talk about this one because this is the last one where I'm horticultural editor. Yeah. So I've, I've resigned from that position and from writing for a while um, just because I want to rest. So... Um, a well-deserved rest too. Uh, yes, I've been I've been hort editor for seven years now. Yeah. I'm writing for the magazine for twenty years. But um, a few, couple of people have rung me and said, "How come Steve didn't write anything about you leaving in the in the magazine?" And that's because we're not telling anyone. <laughs> <laughs> we are on air at the I, moment. No, no. Except them. I, 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 this is my my. These are all my friends and people that I can tell things yeah. to. But um, what's happened is that Phil Dudman has taken over, so he is still writing for Gardening Australia. And one of the things that we try and do with Organic Gardener and Gardening Australia is to keep them separate because it's quite easy for Organic Gardener to be subsumed by Gardening Australia because they have the television program and they get lots more publicity. So we try not to let the same people write for both magazines. So although Phil is taking over as um, editor, as Mm. horticultural editor, he won't be writing for the magazine, Mm -hmm. although I suspect that Steve will probably fall away from that because he's still writing for Gardening Australia. So we've just done it sort of quietly and um, nobody's supposed to really notice. 
Sorry. <laughs> I just thought I'd announce it on 3CR. Yeah, great. Because Steve won't be listening. So that... <laughs> but anyway, so um, that's that's the personal side. I, I just think this is a particularly lovely issue. There's a couple of, I think, really quite interesting things in here. I, I've written about hoses and um, nozzles and things like that. And I learnt so much when I did the research for that article about what's happening with hoses these days, how you can get ratings with your hoses as to whether they kink or not. You go all the mm. way from zero to 10. The higher the number, the less chance they are to kink, but they're much more expensive. Mm. So if you want a hose that you want to drag around the garden everywhere and not keep neat, neatly but rolled up. the money you'd save on therapy sessions. Absolutely. <laughs> by not Absolute having a kinked kinking hose. hose. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my God, yes. Non-kinking hoses are just fantastic. Yeah. Um, and that these days you have um, you can have fittings on the end of your hose that you put your nozzles in that if the nozzle comes out or the hose breaks there's actually a stop that yes, stops the water from those. flowing they're great so they can be really annoying too yes, <laughs> they can if you want to take the yeah, nozzle yeah, off yeah. and you're like but the water's not yeah, coming yeah. out yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> then you but you can swap them over yeah. and put other things in and and so there's all sorts of really interesting things happening i also discovered that you can't recycle hoses because they're made of too many different forms of plastic oh, right. with this anti-kinking stuff yeah. and the strength. So the, the UV, um, they've got, it's all sorts of different polyvinyl chlorides and various other poly whatsits. Um, and so you can't recycle them, mm. but they are, you can reuse them. Yes. Mm -hmm. Is what you need to do with bits of hoses. So you use them for putting, when you're putting wire ties around trees, you put, slip the hose through them instead i use them on the i use um rio mesh quite a lot and i put cut hoses Hose. along the edges mm -hmm. so that i'm not taking my eye out with pointy bits of mm, rio and great idea um so there's lots of different ways of free anyway so i had lots of fun doing that the the other um long article that i've written in here is on herbs and herbal teas so calming herbs because i think all of us need a bit of calming and <laughs> to lower stress and that sort of thing. So yeah. the the I've sort of gone back to some of my my origins on on doing doing the um, calming herbs. herbs. Yeah. So that was great fun to be able to do that. So some of the herbs I've covered in this are basil, bergamot, chamomile, which is pretty traditional. English lavender, um, lemon balm, the various mints, and um, sage and rosemary and primrose flowers which make a really nice herbal tea but um i think what a lot of people don't realize is that with herbal teas you don't need to do anything i've i stopped using tea bags years ago because if you're not using organic certified tea bags you're getting microplastics that release into your cup of tea whenever you use a tea bag they use it to glue the, th the top together, yeah. these microplastics. So I just don't use tea bags at all, ever. Um, but all you need to do is go out in the garden, pick the leaves that you want, put yeah. them in the cup. Yeah, they don't need to be dry. Pour boiling water no, over the top don't. of them. You don't need to do anything with them. Yeah, and they're so easy. And I don't understand why people, even in flats, where you just have a small couple of small pots mm. of the herbs that you love the most. And you could even cut up chunks of ginger and chuck them in the freezer and yep. pull out a couple of chunks for your cup of tea. Yes, indeed. Yep. Or, yeah. you know, all sorts of... The chamomile flowers are better if they're dried, mm, but you yeah. can use them fresh as well. But they have a really nice 
cropping time and you can pick them and you can mm. have lots of chamomile flowers. Mm. So yep. all about calming, calming teas. And the other article in there is an or another article that's in there. There's a really nice one on pumpkins, actually, by Jian Liu, who writes terrific articles. Um, but it's about deep planting. And this is from Angus um, Stewart. Mm-hmm. And it's an extract from his book called Future Proofing. Um, and it's he Angus said when he first started working with this, um, it, it was quite controversial. So yeah. um, he now deep plants everything. So you were, um, Chloe, um, you were talking about your little creek mm-hmm. earlier and, and how it's been eroded. Apparently, if you deep, if you deep plant plants along a creek, even if you get another oh. flood, mm. they often survive the flood. So there you go. it was why people started planting willows along creeks is because okay. they, survived they survived the floods. Mm. But uh, what Angus and a lot of other people and land care people have been discovering is if you deep plant native plants, mm. so that means by deep planting, you have a, a taller tree or shrub. With mm-hmm. You grow them deliberately with quite long stems. Yep. You take off all the side leaves and you plant them to just below where the foliage is. So in the same way as we plant deep plant tomatoes, tomatoes they will grow more roots and they'll establish roots much more quickly. And yeah. in the in this article, there is actually a photograph of um, some eucalypts that um, Angus deep planted. And five months later, mm. they had gone from 20 centimetres to a, over a metre. Um, yes. You know, really, really it's extraordinary deep-rooted wow, planting. Awesome. There's... Yeah, and Angus did the story on Gardening Australia probably about twenty years ago yep. now with with that particular mm. land care group that have been doing it, yep. and it's extraordinary. You know, they'll plant something. What's this? 40, 50, 40 or so centimeters yep. deep. Yeah, wow. with plants that look really leggy in a yes. tube. Yeah, yeah. And you think, oh, that's not going to do anything. Yeah, yeah. But by pulling all of those leaves off, all yep. of those nodes become roots. roots. Yeah, Amazing. that's where and, the growth hormones and are. When I, and I had a bit of an issue when we were first doing the extract because I felt that um, although it, it obviously works for native plants, you know, it doesn't work for um, non-native plants. And um, the particular issue I had was that I don't think it works for grafted fruit trees. Oh, yeah. So, but Angus doesn't necessarily agree. Right. Don't you so, get the shoots from the well below that, the graft? Yeah, yeah, so this is this is what um well it, it's the shoots from above the graft that you don't want to get. Yeah, sorry, the other yeah. way around. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So that's something that I'm hoping they will cover a bit later because in the end it was too because we were doing an extract it was too hard to write specifically about that. Yep. Mm. Um but we flagged it um because I agree with you that if you deep plant grafted fruit trees you're going to get um, you're going to lose what you bought them grafted yeah, for. So yeah. you'll lose the dwarfing, you'll lose the the, the disease um, because you'll get shoots from above the graft. Yeah. Um, so, but ev- I think everything apart from that and some sort of noding plants or grassy type plants, and he says baronias he struggles say, with. Some plants in the citrus yeah. family because they get yeah. cholera, like choisier yes. and some so of the So some of the more fungal um, prone yes. things, it yep. doesn't work, but he says it works for everything else. I've seen it work mm. with rosemary of it being yep. and some lavenders of it being planted th- half to three quarters of yep. the actual plant being put into the ground mm. and 
every node. So mm. salvias, it would definitely yeah. work for a lot of plants yeah. in the Lamiaceae family. Grows from cuttings. I was easily. about to say yes. that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. long as the right um, water is provided to it, it's not too wet, not too yeah. dry. Yeah. And the other thing might be too is if you're pruning, you might want to remove all the branches and leaves well before you put it in the ground, so the wounds have healed a little bit in case it's yeah. an entry point for any pathogens that might be already existing. Mm. In Particularly the soil. if your soil is quite wet. Yeah. Mm. But look, it's, I just think it's a really interesting concept, and I think it's really important that we're open to these possibilities of mm. doing things differently. And obviously, in areas where you're planting um, <coughs> large areas of, of bush, um, of Regeneration was the word I was looking for. Yep. When you're regenerating, you don't necessarily get back to water. Yeah. Um, this could be really, really important mm. for re-establishing whole colonies of plants. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. So I, I just think there's some really interesting articles in this issue. And is the issue out? We've just had a text message come in saying someone's taking a flight tomorrow and they want to know if the, if the issue is it out was, yet. It was released on the 3rd. Yep. So, yeah, it should be at the airport. Yeah, good. And a question has come in um, about uh, the edible herbs, Penny. Um, are all lavenders edible? Do you have any ideas on... Oh, sorry, two questions. Are all lavenders edible and what to do with a glut of borage? Okay, so um, as far as lavenders are concerned, you need to get the right species and actually the right cultivars. So... It's only it, you can eat if you want to. You can eat any lavender, but mm. they don't necessarily taste good. Mm. So some of them are very mentholy and and quite strong. That particularly the um, the lavendula dentata. So um, so that which is French lavender and some of the Spanish and Italian lavenders. I would never bother eating those. But English lavender, lavendula angustifolia, something like Edgerton Blue, um, was actually bred to have edible flowers. So um, you need to look for the flowers that don't have too much strong and it should and nothing except lavendula and gustifolia, yep. so the English lavender. And it's the flowers that you eat. Yeah. So so none of them are poisonous, but not mm. all of them yep, are palatable. Taste great. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, a glut of borage, um, chooks love it. Um, Compost. It composts beautifully. Yeah. So like yeah. comfrey, I'd be just cutting it up and spreading it over the soil or putting it into your compost or give it and feeding it to the worms. Yeah, they love it, it as friends, well. Yes. Picking some up, giving and, it to friends. And eat the flowers. Yeah. I had a student who used to be a chef and he used to serve oysters with a borage flower yeah. on oh, it. Apparently it brings out the flavour in both. I, oh. I, when I talk about borage, I always say that the, the flowers take taste like a cross between oysters and cucumber. Really? So they have that, they that. have that um so the only decision you need when you pick the flowers is whether you leave the hairy back on it or not. And that's <laughs> and that's whether that's the palatability of it. Yep. If you can be bothered just pulling the flower off the off if, the back. If so. I whip a snip borage, I'll come up in welts if it, if the juice hits my skin. Oh, okay. to, oh my skin comes up in welts. Okay, so, so I, it, some, maybe keep that in mind too if you're hairy, eating any of the, the Yeah, it's the silly the, the, uh, the, the yeah. silliate. Little, yeah. Yeah. trichomes. Uh, yeah, trichomes and yes. uh, yeah. fibreglassy sort and of material that they contain. I used to eat the leaves. I don't anymore because they're in the same family as comfrey and, and a lot of internal consumption of those two plants is not recommended yeah. these days, although there are people who totally disagree with me. Do people on that. put them in teas or use them in cooking? Or I, I only use the flowers. Yeah. 
But what did they do with the uh, foliage? You, uh, you'd make it into soup because okay. of its cucumbery flavour. Yeah, so right. it was, and it's quite salty as yeah. well. So it has it has a good flavour, but there, there's some evidence that it can cause liver damage. So okay. which is why Go I easy. don't take either comfrey or borage internally. Yeah, yep. stick to the flowers. Oh. Yeah. Mm. Um, thank you for that. Uh, Another text message come in from Rosie and Mitchum. Thanks for the encouragement a few weeks ago. My leafless native frangipani is now coming back into leaf. So thanks to the team for those um, encouragement there. Um, someone sent through a picture. Unfortunately, can't we can't get images on the screen in the studio. We can only get the actual text. So if you want to send in any photos to us you'll have to email them to us and it's gardening at 3cr.org.au we are on facebook and instagram as well if you want to try to contact us that way now chloe there is one plant that we've got a bit of time for we haven't spoken about yet well look it's not a spectacular plant by any means but i brought it along really just to prompt my memory to talk about it because christmas is just around the corner oh yes and I really feel like people should be giving plants for Christmas, using plants to decorate at Christmas. And, you know, simple things like this is a red and white vinca, so it's red and white plants in the one pot. Um, but something as simple as red and white petunias, red and white vincas, you know, chuck them in a pot, put them on your outdoor table and it instantly looks Christmassy. Mm. Um, using beautiful plants from the garden, like your bottle brush, which are red and white. Uh, anything that's got that sort of festive colour to it, I think is people underrate and they go out and yeah. buy plasticky crap that, you know, mm just contributes to waste but if you use reds whites greens golds from your garden in pots you know have a living decoration mm. that goes on and on and or a living christmas tree a yeah. living christmas tree i saw a beautiful norfolk island pine mm. the other day when i was up at Alloway gardens and i was mm. like oh so tempting to buy that <laughs> it was just majestic and you know yeah. you sort of look you'd have to have very very light decorations mm. but it looked beautiful but you know yeah Trying to encourage people to use botanics from their own gardens yep. or plant things in Christmassy colours rather than buying plastic. Much more sustainable way so to go. And it does bring an extra element of life to, you know, to these sorts of celebrations. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, that was my little rant about don't do plastic crap. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. No, absolutely. That's fantastic. And it's that's a very cute little plant there. Those red flowers are stunning. It is really sweet, isn't it? And it's got yeah. nice glossy leaves as Nice, well. dark, glossy leaves. So nice contrast. Yeah. And that's yeah. a sun-loving vinca as well. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Um, we are getting close to finishing up. We've had one more text message coming that we've got time for. Um, Anne is asking, Anne from Pakenham wants to know what lavender is best for a hedge? Oh, all of them, All of them really. Yeah. Um, so it depends how tall you want the hedge to be. It depends when you want it to flower. Um, and it, if you want long flowering and a tall hedge, I'd be going with one of the English lavenders. Uh, sorry, I'd be going with one of the French lavenders, Lavendula dentata. If you want, a, there's some gorgeous um, Spanish and Italian lavenders that mm. are just so floriferous. Mm. They look extraordinary. They tend to be smaller. Um, the English lavenders generally only flower at one specific point during the year, so they're not really long flowering, but you can pick the flowers and you can use them in all sorts of different ways for sachets and for eating and stuff like that. So it really depends what you want it for. Um, 
you can't have really wet soil. They mm. lavenders really don't like wet soil. It needs to be well drained. And at, regular tip pruning, yeah, or regular well, pruning. Well, you prune it, yeah, yeah. So, so one of the things about um, the French lavender is that you can cut it back um, in summer, and it will then flower right through winter. Whereas the other lavenders, you usually need to cut them back in winter, and then they're ready to produce lots of flowers in in spring and mm-hmm. summer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I love lavender as a hedge. It's a, it's a yeah, great There's one on a f- path near it, yeah. in the front, someone's front garden, and I often walk past it, and mm. when it's in full flower, you just can't help run running your hand, hand across it, it. Yeah. Yes. releasing that smell yeah. and thinking, ah. Yes. It is lovely. Yeah, yeah. it yeah. is lovely. Um, yeah. Even rosemary hedges as yes. well. Love yes. running my hands along them. Yep. Yeah. 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 Very good. All right, well, we have come to the end of another 3CR gardening show for this Sunday. Thank you, everyone, for your calls and your text messages and participating. Thanks to Greg, Penny and Chloe for your expertise. Um, Burn, thank you for keeping us in line in the studio next door and to Liz, who does all of our socials. Have a lovely Sunday, everyone, and we'll be back again at 7.30 next Sunday. See you later. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.